Hi, everyone. I'm Laura Flora Shaw, and this is Science Montessori and Parenting from White Paper Press, the publisher of the Montessori White Papers. Here at SMP, we discuss the intersections of science, Montessori, and parenting. And if you're not yet a member of the SMP Facebook group, you're missing out. So look us up and join in on the conversation. It's a really great place to get vetted information and to get your questions answered. In fact, if you pose a question to the SMP Facebook group, it might even be answered here on this very podcast. So today's episode is actually the second part to our last episode, which focused on Montessori and the vertical brain model. In that episode, I spoke with neuropsychologist Dr. Deborah Budding about how the vertical model of the brain views executive functions from a born-to-move rather than a born-to-think perspective. And today, I'm talking with neurologic music therapist Peggy Schaefer about the vertical brain model in action. Now, I do want to point out that we talk a lot about children who are diagnosed with ADHD and or autism in this episode, but... All of the information here is actually applicable to understanding all children and their development. First, we discuss the development of movement, and then we look at autism from a sensory motor versus behavioral perspective. But then Peggy provides some concrete things that teachers and parents can do to help children with things like transitions and emotion regulation. She also provides a really interesting perspective on empathy. Finally, because of the length of this episode, I've provided some time markers in the show notes on our website at www.whitepaperpress.us. I've also linked some relevant articles you might want to check out. So now, let's just dive into the conversation. I'm Peggy Schaefer. I'm a board-certified music therapist with a professional designation in neurologic music therapy. A fellow of the Academy, in fact. I know, it sounds very impressive. That is very impressive. So what is neurologic (laughs) music therapy? So neurologic music therapy is different from what we call like traditional music therapy in that there's a paradigm shift in not a social science model of thinking, but a neuroscience model of thinking. So the reason why it's different is because in the social science model, it's more of a behaviorally based in that it makes you feel better, um, more of like a social science mentality of using music. But neurologic music therapy is different because we use the neuroscience of music and perception and research to support clinical techniques and how it's applied to um, specific populations. So it's, 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 it's a different um, approach in that we're really looking at how the brain uses rhythm and music and applying it to populations. So this works really well then with the vertical brain model. Can yes. you give us some mm-hmm. more understanding about that? Yeah. So when rhythm, um, so in neurologic music therapy, in music, there are many elements to music. NMT, I'm going to call it that from now on so I don't have to say neurologic music therapy. Um, NMT focuses specifically on rhythm as the foundation, let's say foundational element of music. So what's cool about that is that the way that our brains process rhythm is pretty fascinating. So when we're listening to sound or music or rhythm, what have you, it is entering in through our ear and it has a subconscious sort of, I guess, activation that goes down through the spinal cord first. So the reason for this, why it fits very nicely into the vertical brain models, because we're looking at top to bottom, bottom to top sort of processes of music and rhythm. And of special note for me and my work is looking at how it uses 
our motor system, our sensory motor system, and, and what is called entrainment. So entrainment is the subconscious activation of the sensory motor system in concert with rhythmic information. So we're not having to think about moving as much when rhythm is present. So mm. the example I give is when your foot is tapping and you don't know it. So this is an example of how our brains are using rhythm in a subconscious way to activate the sensory motor system. And as I know you had Deborah, um, Dr. Budding on before, we find that very interesting and very helpful because we view a lot of neurodevelopmental issues as a sensory motor movement disorder. So that's really where rhythm comes in and is a useful tool in organizing and creating a feed-forward model. So a lot of times in a behavioral context, we use feedback, right? So something didn't work, so we're using the feedback we get to then adjust what we do next. The cool thing about rhythm is that our brains are actually analyzing the time between the clicks, not the clicks themselves. So when your brain is hearing one beat, right, and then the next beat comes, your brain is actually predicting what the next beat will be based on the beat before it. So this is really helpful in creating a feed-forward model, but also in the idea of a movement disorder perspective. Because if you can predict what's going to happen next in your movement, that helps with social, helps with cognition, helps with emotional, let's say regulation is the best word I would say. Mm -hmm. So if we can help people move better, we can help people think better, feel better, all that jazz. Okay, so I have this question that, yeah. uh, that I didn't plan on asking, but yeah. I have to ask this. We're going off books. We are. Oh, boy. And um, so what about a person who is a really good dancer uh -huh. when they're just dancing to the music, but they cannot do choreographed dancing mm -hmm. at all? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's painful. I might know someone like this. Um so I'm just, what, what, <laughs> what pops into my head? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because this past weekend we had a, a conversation about this a little bit. Um, we were talking with some people about this concept of beat deficiency, right? And our brains are analyzing that information regardless of whether we realize it or not. So this is happening on a, on a, on such a deep level in our brains that we don't necessarily know it's happening. Now to speak to your your, um, let's say, hypothetical situation. Your friend. Uh, yes, your friend. Um, I would go back to, and I listened to your previous podcast with Dr. Budding about automaticity versus effortfulness. So when this person is dancing and not thinking about it, their body isn't trained in an automatic way. Mm -hmm. But the moment that a choreography comes into play, usually that becomes a more conscious, effortful, having to think about it process. So it gets more rigid. And so we'll see people who, for instance, in, in my work with stroke patients or brain injured um, patients in the hospitals, we would do gait training or helping with ambulation after a brain injury. And the number one thing we've, we've learned is that you do not call attention to arm swings. Because if you say to somebody, swing your arm, all of a sudden they look like robots. Mm -hmm. Right, because now we've called conscious, effortful attention to something that should be automated. Right. Okay. So we'll have people who are now not doing the reciprocal, meaning left foot comes forward, right arm goes forward. They're actually 
walking like I, I I can't give a visual, but their oh, right, right arm is moving. Will Rogers, correct, from the- <laughs> and their right arm is moving with their right leg, right. So it's like this this very rigid um, movement, which I don't. I mean, that's the best way I can answer it is that when we're thinking too much about moving, or when we're thinking too much about thinking, <laughs> right. right, or thinking too much about feeling, you can either have I, I would say a shutdown or an overshoot. So you can have people who completely shut down when they're thinking too much, or you have people who overshoot where their bodies move too much. Okay. 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 All right. Thank you for... Yes. Yes. You're very welcome. I'll let my friend know what you said. I I, I think I know your friend. (laughs) That's for another podcast. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about... Let's talk about movements. Yes, please. And uh, looking at development from a sensory motor perspective... Mm -hmm. And thinking about developmentally appropriate movements. Yeah. And I know that that's what your work Mm -hmm. focuses on. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about the development of appropriate movements and maybe the framework from which also you're operating? Yeah. So I'm operating more from um, uh, sensory motor development, specifically with the Prague School, um, so the Dynamic Neuromuscular Stabilization. It's a mouthful. It is. So I'm now going to say DNS. Okay, so NMT, DNS. So we look at how babies develop from birth through this process of encoding, so muscle encoding. So when we're born, our muscles are encoded with a program, let's say, of how these systems work together or in our work, how they don't work together, really. And we want to see this process happen in a particular way because there's a meaning or there's a goal to it. So we look specifically at how shoulders, core, and hips are being utilized. So there's a reason why babies learn to hold their legs up at three months. There's a reason why babies learn to roll over at five, right? Because as our sensory motor system or our let's say central nervous system is maturing, these are things that start to emerge. So looking at these pieces of how our bodies are using or not using certain systems or certain muscle groups or certain stabilizers, let's say that's a big one, we see later on how certain developmental milestones, I guess, have not been reached. So we can see this in I mean, I, I talk openly about how I have, I had a break at about four and a half, five months in my sensory motor development, and that was assessed by watching me roll over. And what the person who assessed me saw was that my shoulders and hips were not working in concert. So shoulders were rolling first, hips came last. Now, where does that lead us? Well, then that leads us to the core, because if the core is not firing in a in a uniform and and stabilizing way, the shoulders and hips are like not communicating together. And we see this very often in particularly in spectrum um, and ADHD as well. And just as much as you see it in this, you can also see it in the neurodegenerative population, which I know we're not going to necessarily speak to, but in my work working with the neurodegenerative, I saw so much carryover. Wow. Between what we did with Parkinson's and then what we started to apply to spectrum specifically. So, and these movements, these milestones mm-hmm. and so forth, and the movements that you see 
infants engage in spontaneously, but that you see across essentially all infants, right? Assuming that everything is is developing the way that it's supposed to be developing. These are all movements that help to build this coordination of all the limbs and and the stabilization of the core. Mm -hmm. And and I think I want to point out too, when we think about core, like people who have a really strong core, Mm -hmm. we usually think of people who have six-pack abs. Mm -mm. And that's actually more of an indication of an over-firing of some muscles and an under-firing of other muscles as opposed to what it should look like, which is... What, what would you Round, say? Um, rounded tummy. And the one thing that I try to communicate with my parents is um, they'll say, oh, well, look at how, how fit they are, you know, and that happens a lot. Or um, Meaning the parents, of course, of your clients. Yeah, sorry, of my yes. clients, yeah. And I will oftentimes say, yeah, that's right. That's what's working. But when I ask them to use what we call the back or side wall abdominal muscles, which are the side, the muscles that are involved in the side of our of our bodies, they cannot activate them. They will, I mean, it will take months for us to get that work done. Mm-hmm. And from my own experience, it took me a month to find my own. So it's a journey in understanding body awareness. And sometimes we can't go there initially because again, it's effortful. Right, so we have to look at what is automatically being used in the body versus not, and to start out with, maybe we start out with just walking, or maybe we start out with something very natural to their bodies, and then gradually, as they get to find more comfort and effortful movement, we can do that. But that also applies to cognition and emotion, right? If we're thinking too much about it and we're not meeting the person where they are, you're overshooting where they are, not just developmentally and, you know, whatever sort of, we can talk about that. I know we're going to get into the DSM stuff, but you can, you can overshoot it from a, what people might determine or think of as a, an intellectual ability. But I even look at it from, you're overshooting their sensory motor system. Their system has not achieved very important sensory motor postures. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. We tend to only think about other people's behavior in terms of their cognition, in terms of what they're thinking, as opposed to uh, in terms of these these sensory motor issues they may be having, especially with children. Yes, we do that. But yes. even you know, even with adults. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm an adult, kind of, and <laughs> last I checked, although some days not, and. Um, I had these issues too, where I had to go back and look at these things and go, oh, this is why um, certain movements were feeling difficult for me. And if we look at it from a from that perspective, I love the term stabilization because it, it mirrors so well the idea of regulation. Mm-hmm. Because if we do not have stable bodies, how can we have stable thoughts and stable emotions? And for some people, that swing between what is stable and not stable is much bigger than others. The variability can be a lot more. But if we allow our bodies to get more stable by doing specific exercises, for me using rhythm, then we can address other issues as well. Mm-hmm. So the sensory motor piece I find to be a really great way to, to work with um, individuals who you know, I mean, my practice is primarily non-speaking individuals um, on the spectrum. And sitting there and talking to them and and talking at them is not going to be the most helpful approach. Oh my gosh, no. Not because they're not intelligent, 
but because the being talked at doesn't help them to build the awareness of what their body's doing. And if you look at it from a movement perspective, and if you communicate with these individuals, the number one thing they talk about is that they don't control their bodies. Yeah. Yeah. I think I mentioned this in the podcast with Dr. Budding, but I had the privilege of watching you. Oh yeah. Yeah. You did come um, and (laughs) and with your clients and who were just amazing and Mm -hmm. you were amazing with them. And it was just such an amazing experience to see someone who is having difficulty just coming into your room, mm-hmm. right? Just every time that it was, okay, it's time to come in, mm-hmm. he would run in the opposite direction. Right. When he finally came in after about 10 minutes or so and sat down, he wanted to communicate first before going into the movement mm-hmm. exercises. Mm-hmm. And he really wanted me to know as mm-hmm. the observer, and he said uh, through his typing I know it looks like I don't want to be here, but I really do. And that's just such an example of their bodies are doing one thing, even if their intentions mean something totally different. Correct. Correct. And this can be applied to the entire, whatever you want to call it, spectrum. You know, I mean, it's such a varied diagnosis and many different, I call them profiles. Um, I tend to not call it spectrum. I tend to call it a profile because nobody with autism looks the same as the next person with autism. I mean, you can have certain profiles that that present the same way in terms of movement at times, but what's driving that movement is going to be different for each person. Um, yeah. I mean, if we believe what we see all the time and if we take that approach, we miss a lot of great things. Well, yeah. And I think even just from, you know, uh, I mean, I know that as a society, we tend to put these labels uh, mm-hmm. on people, but, but even for, for children who are neurotypical, mm-hmm. developing children, you know, I remember when I first became a head of school, you start to, and you see so many small children, so many young children, and you see actually how they actually appear disconnected yeah. from their bodies. Yeah. Right, yeah. they're very much in their in their heads, and mm-hmm. so Montessori is so great because it has these very grounding types of activities, physical activities that they can do, and of course the whole sensory motor environment. But just even something like walking on the line, mm-hmm. you're holding something and balancing it as you're walking on the line. That really puts you in touch with and inside your body. Mm-hmm. So even if you're you don't have any kind of diagnosis, though, you know every person is different. And I don't even like the term neurotypical because I'm not even really sure exactly what what that that? means. (laughs) We all talk about that. Yeah. What is that? It's just sort of the catch-all, you know, it's politically correct. Yeah, right. (laughs) It is. But but, Mm -hmm. honestly, probably every single person's sensory motor development is varied. Unique. It's Mm -hmm. unique. So if we can look at the children from that perspective, I think it can open up uh, caregivers, teachers, parents' eyes to new ways of interacting with the children or understanding them. And I think that really leads us into the DSM idea. So why are, you know, okay, so one of the biggest issues that I run into just professionally with other disciplines and other professionals is this idea of spectrum as a movement disorder versus what the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, puts it. So it falls into a behavioral category in the DSM-5. And that doesn't really jive with what I see. If we are believing it to be those things, then we're not looking at the cause of what it is. And additionally, we see um, people who, I mean, socially, they very much want to have the friendships, right? The social piece of it is definitely something that gets, in my opinion, gets 
uh, misconstrued because the individuals I work with very much want friends. And in fact, the non-speaking individuals I work with want friends more than anybody um, because they don't have friends. And the belief, if we hold the belief that there is a desire to not want that in one's life, then you will have behaviors (laughs) because you're going to be a little upset and you're going to be emotionally activated. And and let us not forget that not wanting friends is different than having a hard time with it. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you hear coming from a behavioral perspective, the DSM perspective, is that people who are on the spectrum, they lack empathy. And that's actually incorrect. It's the application of the empathy, I would say. So the movement of the empathy, um, to not get too like <laughs> esoteric. But I think that, that, and I know you talked about this with Dr. Budding, this idea of overshoot and undershoot. So you can have someone who's too empathetic. So I'll actually have people who come in and stare at me. And as they're staring at me, that I've learned now through the years that the staring is because they're not in their body and they are over empathetic. Mm-hmm. They're using my emotions, they're using the energy in the room, for lack of a better term, to feel themselves. So they're not actually in their bodies, they're actually feeling too much of me or too much of somebody else in the room. So a classic comment is oh, I took my son to the playground. And there was a boy across the way crying, and my son started to cry. So that is an example when the child is actually too empathetic. Now, when you see the under-empathy, I think it could be more of an attentional issue, but also an application issue. Mm -hmm. So they may know that it doesn't feel good for the other person to feel a certain way. But to apply that in context requires what I would call divided attention. And if you have attentional issues at play, it's going to be hard to take that information, integrate it, and apply it. Right. Okay, so I'm looking at it from a foundational standpoint that empathy is a lot of attention and emotion working together and movement. Mm-hmm. So I hope that makes sense, but it does. It, it, it's a big issue. So I tend to not use, I'm not a diagnostic person anyways, but um, I could never diagnose somebody, but I I do not fall into a category of of looking at spectrum as a behavioral disorder. And I wanted to ask too, how, since we're talking about uh, spectrum, Mm -hmm. how does that present in girls versus boys? Yeah, it it is different. I mean, I can can only use my own personal experiences, so take it for what it is, right? I'm not going to say that this is the end all be all, but I would say that the female profile for spectrum oftentimes can look undershooty, meaning, and this isn't always the case. Again, everybody's different. But I think as a society, we tend to overlook the girls who are compliant, quote unquote. And we look at them as being, oh, look, they're really focused, which I know we want to talk about later. Mm -hmm. But I actually, if you you dig a little deeper, and I know Dr. Budding can talk about this in the testing piece of it. If you dig a little deeper, you actually see that there's a lot that's happening. We're just not seeing it from the outside. So boys tend to present as noncompliant, let's say uh, rude or, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? Um, a lot of a lot of teachers will say, oh, "What is it? Defiant." That's the word. So defiant, um, oppositional. Yeah, right. 
And actually with girls, we'll see that they're super compliant and they're not having any issues at school. And in fact, if we see a profile with ADHD and ASD, I was just going to say, that's when we'll find an issue because the ADHD will cause hyper talking, hyperverbal, um, too emotional, not too emotional, but you know, over emotional overshoots. So, but if you see a classic ASD profile in girls, it can look very tricky. Well, even if you have the difference between ADHD presentation in a girl and a boy just by itself, right? So a lot of times girls are just inattentive and they don't have the hyperactivity and the boys have the hyperactivity and then they also are labeled as defiant and oppositional Mm -hmm. and everything else. So Right. And and it's complicated. It's not, um, it's not something that you can just go, oh, that's what that is. Um, and and the mis- in my opinion, the misdiagnosis or underdiagnosis of an ASD profile with an ADHD or vice versa. I have many clients that I see present with a lot of ADHD, but they're only diagnosed ASD because they don't talk. Right. Okay, so then you see this difference. Then you can have an overdiagnosis of ADHD because we have super talky kid, but an underdiagnosis of ASD because it's presenting as a hyperactivity, yeah, not as a mood regulatory, movement regulatory issue. Yeah, it's complicated. It is so yeah. complicated. But That's this all- is where I would advocate that taking the sensory motor approach is so helpful because you don't have to worry too much about all of that, Yeah, right? Because you can just say, okay, fair enough. We have what we have here. Here's how we can address it with movement. I agree. I definitely agree. So, and one of the things you were touching on too, when we were talking about the need that they have or that people, people on the spectrum have to have friends mm-hmm. and the sense of empathy that they have, uh, let's talk a little bit about presumed competency right? as well. Yeah. This is a, an approach that was started by, um, well, I wouldn't say started by, but has been endorsed and maybe um, carried on more so by Douglas Bicklin, who is... Um, someone who advocates strongly for communication rights and um, advocacy for individuals who do not talk. So there's a lot of controversial evidence out there, both for and against um, alternative communication strategies for individuals who don't talk. But I think the overwhelming belief, despite what your beliefs are about that, we need to understand competency. So Um, The classic quote um, is, just because I don't talk doesn't mean I don't have anything to say. And this can happen for people who do speak and then people who shut down or don't speak. So presumed competence is that regardless of whatever you want to call intellect, right? So you could have an IQ score of whatever. We must presume that you're competent, that you are capable of doing the best of your ability, and we are here to support you to reach that success. And that success can look different for each person. So it's a person-matched approach. And I think that's very important, and I think it fits very nicely with the Montessori model because it incorporates this idea that just because someone may not present how we think they should does not mean that they can't be successful. Right. So let's talk about that perspective and actually how that would work in a classroom, mm-hmm. how that applies in a classroom, because I think that there's there's sort of a fine line that can happen in a classroom where a teacher can recognize that a child is having difficulty with 
transitions, right. let's say, big or, or that is a big one. Mm-hmm. So maybe they worry more about the child melting down during yes. a transition. Yes, yes. Rather than presuming competency, right? Rather than presuming that the child can actually learn how to deal with these transitions because life is full of transitions. Yeah. And if you're over accommodating because you're afraid of the meltdown, then you're actually presuming incompetence. Correct. It's an undershoot. Yep. Mm -hmm. And the way that teachers interface with kids and their students I mean, I I think I said this on another podcast. It's like I find it so interesting because we can have teachers or environments in which we overshoot our our interfacing with the child, meaning you can become um, highly disciplinary and stern, let's say, right? But actually you're overshooting on them and that can cause as much of a hindrance to the child learning how to self-regulate as it would if you undershoot. And and what undershooting can look like in terms of accommodation can be tricky because what you're talking about where the, the teacher is afraid of a meltdown, I view as an undershoot because the teacher or the individual is scared and has been triggered maybe by this child before and is getting anxious that we don't know how to handle this, you know, this is too much. And so you're actually fulfilling the prophecy, so to speak, mm-hmm. of the meltdown. And what you're speaking to is very common, and I see that also with parents and children for good reason. I mean, what parent wants to be dealing with a meltdown every transition? I get it. But it's the work that the whole system has to do. It's so true. I mean, even from just a parenting mm-hmm. perspective, even if you have a quote-unquote whatever that means, neurotypical right. child, mm-hmm. I have known parents who would never take their children under five out to dinner at a restaurant. Right. That's presuming incompetence, that they can't actually learn how to deal in these everyday types of situations. And so you just ultimately avoid them. Right. And then that's when as parents and teachers, the support person, and we have to recognize, is this my thing or is this their thing? (laughs) Right. And a lot of, we're all humans and we all come into this with our own set of histories. And um, when we recognize that our own histories or our own memories or what have you play a role in how we parent and teach, I think it really can be such, it's hard, but it's a freeing way to look at things because, oh, this child's having a meltdown. Yes, I may have contributed to that in some way. Let me look at it. But ultimately, this is the child's work. And how do we help the child with their work? And that is not always discussed in the intervention of autism specifically because it's either you're not a good listener, you're not smart, or, oh, poor baby. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, that overshoot, undershoot mentality. When really it's, hey, life is tough. And it's tough for all of us. And I'm not saying that, you know, we should not be um, empathetic. But if we don't meet the child through those needs and understand why those needs are happening, which is why I find sensory motor approach so helpful, then we can't really support the child through this work because we're either avoiding it or we're trying to discipline them out of it. Well, and I think sometimes what can happen in Montessori classrooms is that teachers will have the perception that their classrooms are supposed to be quiet and extremely peaceful. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't think every, I don't mean to generalize and suggest that every Montessori teacher thinks that, but I do 
I've heard that enough mm-hmm. from especially newer teachers mm-hmm. that they walk into the classroom with this assumption. So then it starts to feel like, well, a child who isn't neurotypical may not belong here then because they're disrupting the Disrupted. peacefulness of the classroom. Right, right, right. But then that child doesn't have an opportunity to learn and the other children right. also don't have an opportunity to learn that there are very many different types of people who make up our society. Yeah, it's a real loss to not have that. Oh, what's that called when you a flower but bu- bouquet? When you don't have a bouquet of different people and different neurologies. And understanding that everybody gains from that. It's not easy though. You know, yeah. it's not easy for a teacher to have to do all of that. But this also kind of speaks to I think Montessori teachers are dealing with it already. They just don't have an have maybe all the families who are on board at seeing the diagnosis or the the issue in the same way. Yeah, I agree. Um, So I do think actually subconsciously Montessori is a huge magnet for spectrum and ADHD. Oh, yeah. No. (laughs) And I think that they see that and they feel it. They just don't always know what to do with it or don't have the ability to say this is an issue because of, you know, concerns with obviously diagnosing is not in their scope of practice. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So what recommendations do you have for teachers? More specifically, are you asking in regard to the meltdowns? If you have children in your environment that you suspect are not neurotypical, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what are just some general things that teachers need to keep in mind? I mean, we've talked about presumed competency, which I think is a big one, Uh, but what other things... Um, I actually think in the Montessori, I mean, in my experience, there can be over presumption of competence um, or over, let me say, over accommodation of competence. So like what you're speaking to about the, the class being quiet and all of that, I, I think that there's, there's big, big hearts and big love in Montessori, right? And so they, they want to help meet the child, but sometimes it's, it's tough because they don't want to have the meltdown too. So my number one advice if you suspect something's going on or are finding a difficult, I don't want to use difficult child, I mean a different child or a difficulty with helping a child or supporting a child, I would say look at how they move. And I know that not everybody's going to have that perceptual eye to see, catch all these different nuances that maybe someone who's trained in it would, but there's a reason why the kid's under the desk. There's a reason why the kid is leaning on its arms. There's a reason why the child is walking around the room. There's a reason why the child is stuck on one object or one work project that they're doing for the entire work cycle. Yeah, see, that's hard because, well, first of all, in Montessori, if you have a child who's doing repetitive work, you actually want to see that. And part of it is like, well, maybe the child needs to do that repetition Mm -hmm. because you'll see that in neurotypical children where they have a writing explosion, for instance, and then they want to write all the time and they don't want to do anything else Uh because they're They're mastering They're mastering it. Mm -hmm. And they're, but then you have a situation where a child will be stuck on a particular work. And the question is, how do you differentiate when they're really in a mastery situation or when they're just stuck? I would say that that's when you really have to observe the whole environment. So if there's a kiddo that gets pretty stuck on one thing and and you're perceiving it as mastery or, or trying to understand it, I would say observe how does the child go outside to play? 
how does the child transition into lunch? How does the child transition into group time or work, right? So it's really looking at a full environment sort of diagnostics of, okay, what seems to be an issue for this child? Is this child having a very hard time leaving the work because they really want to do it or because it is an emotional response that they can't get out of? They don't want to leave their security net, right? The safety blanket or whatever you want to call it. And so I would say that looking at, does this child get stuck on one friend all the time? Does this friend want to sit next to this friend all the time? And and the other friend's fine to move on to another friend, but this one kid has to sit and has to be next to this particular situation. It may not always present that starkly, you know, in, in profile, but I would say for teachers, if you notice these things, look at the whole picture because that will help inform, oh, this person staying on this project because they really have a hard time switching. Yeah. See, that's such a different perspective than thinking, okay, well, this child does have difficulties with transitions or this child always does need to sit next to this child at, at circle time. So mm-hmm. that can be problematic at times, but wow, we're in the middle of the work cycle and they're at a table and they're being quiet because mm-hmm. they're with this work. So that's fine. Exactly. Right. Because it's a quiet room. <laughs> that's right. Because It's a quiet room. Yeah. yeah. And instead thinking about the whole child, Mm -hmm. yeah, right, in all of these different situations and what that might add up to. Mm -hmm. I had an experience with a a family who was in Montessori, and what they were noticing was that the work was coming back the same each day, right? So the, the work that the child was bringing home was the same each day. And when they spoke to the teacher about that, because that was something that was of concern. Now, this family knows that their child is on the spectrum and knows that the child has, let's say, diversity going on. They were advocating to understand, well, why is there not work coming back that's different, right? It's always the same. And the teacher's response was, well, I invite them to do different work, but they don't want to do it. Right. And that's where I think we can look at this as an undershoot on the teacher's part. Um, because maybe what needs to happen is more explicit scaffolding for the child, which can kind of lead us into that idea. Because if you are seeing a child that's stuck on work and they're compliant, you don't want to rock the boat. But maybe this is where you have to use that creative thinking (laughs) to shift them out of it. Because it's not going to serve the child to be stuck in that place all the time. Well, and it's not going to come internally from the child. Exactly. And so exactly. that's where the scaffolding needs to occur. Mm-hmm. The adult needs to provide that scaffolding right. to, so that eventually it will come from within the child, but that it requires yeah, a lot of scaffolding in the meantime. And the way that this family um, figured out how to get through that was they created a have-to work for the child. So it was actually... And I know this doesn't necessarily go with uh, Montessori. Maybe, I mean, you can speak to that more. But they imposed a have-to on onto the child, meaning you can have choice during work cycle to do whatever it is that you'd like to do um, and whatever feels good. But at some point, there's going to have to be something that we shift to. And I know that sounded hard for the teacher to understand, but what happened from that was that There was more variability, transition stress reduced, uh, friendship growth happened, because what happened is the child learned, I can do this. If we presume that all neurologies are just going to automatically figure this out, 
right. without some help, you will not be providing competency-based approach. Right. Because the children, they don't know what they don't know. Right. Right. And especially if they have neurodevelopmental differences. Right. And it's not a punishment. No. And in fact, what happened is this little boy learned, oh my gosh, I can do this. You know, I got there. And it wasn't a stressful experience. It was presented. The teacher presented the new idea to the child. And it wasn't for the whole class. It was just for this child. Right. And that was what was determined would be helpful. And he is doing so much better because there was this idea of, I know you can do this. And there's a difference between have to because I say so and have to because we want you to see how successful you can be. That's right. And then that's an experience that that child can draw upon again. That's right. And they're not having to use the have to's as much because he's finding his way around the class and experiencing more. So again, this speaks to what I call the least to most strategy. So it's about not having to be at level 10 of support all the time. It's about, okay, did level 10 work? Awesome. Let's move it down to nine and eight and seven and six and let's see if we really need this much right now. Right. What I'd like to do is to kind of transition into some concrete, mm -hmm. some other concrete things that, that teachers can do. Mm -hmm. in, in terms of children who may have difficulty with transitions and may mm -hmm. demonstrate a fair amount of meltdowns and that sort of thing, I think it's important to talk about what the teacher needs to do to prepare his or herself first. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about the prepared environment mm -hmm. a lot in Montessori, and the teacher obviously is a very large part of that prepared environment as well. And what do they need to observe in, their, in themselves first? And then we can talk about what they need to do to observe in terms of the children. Uh-huh. Um, I think that as a teacher, the number one thing you can observe in yourself is emotional, let's say, emotional patterning or grounding. So do you fall into a, an emotional cycle with a particular child? Do you, um, um, I, and listen, I know all teachers are not going to like all their kids. There's a definite likability that comes into it. Um, but being mindful of those things, because again, we all come to the table with certain experiences. You may have had an experience with someone on the spectrum that wasn't so positive, and you can project that onto a child that has autism that you know has autism. But again, every profile is different. Mm -hmm. So I would say as a teacher, I don't know, I don't want to sound too like psychologically like woohoo, but um, do you have an activation of anxiety or, or frustration at a certain time of day, okay? Or at a certain time when a child or a parent walks into the room? Right. Do you get anxious during transition? That's that's right. right. That's right. And are you anxious because you are anxious or are you anxious anticipating what is going to take place? Right. Right. And if you can be mindful of those things and go, ah, it's coming, you can also try to regulate yourself and reassure yourself because what I notice in transitional stress is that if you reassure someone that everything's okay, we got this because I'm okay and because you're okay, the child knows that. The child reads it. I just had a client who's an adult who was having a panic attack in my office, and I just looked at him and I said, dude, we are okay. You are safe. I'm cool. We're okay. And he looked at me, and I said, if you need to sit or if you need to, you know, whatever, it's cool. Do it. But you're okay. And 
that wasn't ultimately what shifted him. I mean, I think it helped him, but that mentality and that belief, I guess, in getting through these things helps to not only regulate the child, but the teacher. And if the teacher's regulated, that is a stabilizer for that classroom. Yes, absolutely. In terms of what they can concretely do, I always advise, think five minutes before the stress. Yeah. Because it's not a matter of what what I hear you saying, it's not just a matter of being calm. No. Right? Because you can be calm and you can appear calm, but you could be Mm. dying inside and extremely anxious and having your own panic attack. Exactly. But instead, it's really that very grounded feeling of being in your own body and being... And being explicit about it. Being very explicit, exactly. And just knowing Mm -hmm. everyone's going to be fine. And yes, absolutely, the children will pick up on it. Yeah. Oh, it's... it's, um you know, I, I think it has really helped in my work to take that approach because if you don't, you can see the difference between environments where the child is presented with that type of energy or that type of approach versus not. And you can see that in the dynamics between different parents, between different teachers, between different, you know, support or friends. You can yeah. see that between friendships with children. So, yes, it is not uh, – I can't give any other <laughs> – I well, wish it was more concrete, but but really I do think it it speaks volumes of having that awareness in yourself and reassurance. Yeah, and I think honestly it's parents need to do the same thing. That's yeah. because we well, yeah. we get it's the same thing. We get we flooded. Get, we get flooded, yep. we get triggered by mm-hmm. our own children's meltdowns, by their misbehaviors. I mean, I had a child who, you know, who screamed at me for four years. Uh, or basically from year one to year five. It's going to pick back right? up again. And so, Get ready. Yeah, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, And it is very difficult to keep mm-hmm. yourself grounded, it but is. that's what you ha- you just have to be like, it's going to be okay. Right. You know, it's yeah. just, just going to be okay. Yes. So let's talk about uh, observation is a big thing in, in Montessori. Yes. All of the teachers are trained to observe the children. I will say this though, I have talked to so many teachers over the years who talk about how they don't observe enough mm-hmm. and they're missing out on opportunities, real opportunities. Cause it's hard. It's so hard to be a Montessori teacher because oh. there's so much that you have to be aware of all at once. You know, every individual child's lesson plan. And I mean, it's incredible. I could not. My neurology would not permit it. Oh, there's I, no I would, way that I, I, I could would, be. I mean, yeah. I love I, I love Montessori. I love Montessori teachers. I, they are definitely doing God's work. Ooh. There is no way that I could, that mm-hmm. my neurology would be able to, mm-hmm. to handle all of that. In fact, I had to learn when I started as a head of school, I had to learn how to walk into the classrooms without being just my typical loud self. Boisterous self. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but observation is, is definitely mm-hmm. key. And mm-hmm. Dr. Montessori did, she talked so much about getting information from the children. I mean, that's how she developed her method through the systematic observation of children. So what do we need to be looking at in, in terms of the, you know what I would really love, and I don't know if this is ever going to be possible, but it would be so great to have a way to train all Montessori teachers to look at children's movements from starting at birth 
through, oh, yeah. you know, age six for that oh, first yeah. plane of development, right? So that we could, they could really see, and I'm sure a lot of teachers just in uh, the samples of children that they have, mm-hmm. they start to notice things yeah, over time, yeah. but it would be so great to get some explicit training on that. What movements are developmentally appropriate? When, mm. at what point, where's the tipping point where a child may actually need to be evaluated? Because right. we know that early intervention mm-hmm. is key. Or, or providing teachers with, um, this is where I get, mm, I guess, frustrated, but I don't think it's really frustrated, but um, more of like, well, teachers are really smart and they have an ability to use this. And I've met so many awesome people, teachers, who want to know how to support the child. And if it means that they need to do a shoulder exercise before a writing exercise, they will do it. And so I think it it's not assuming competency of the teachers, you know? Right. Right? Because they they see it. I mean, I talk to teachers all the time who will go, oh, yeah, no, I can tell that kid is walking different or talking differently or um, the speech volume or cadence is really kind of different with this kid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess in terms of that, um, yes, I totally agree that all of us would benefit from having that, even parents, to have that training to understand how to support in terms of concrete ideas, um, I think I just said a little bit ago about five minutes before the meltdown tends to be my role of thought. It could be 10, you know, everybody's different. I think this could best be given through an example. Yeah. Uh, so there was a boy that I was working with in Montessori, and he was having a hard time transitioning to get in line. So he was having a very hard time getting into line, switching from quiet work or whatever, you know, work cycle into getting in line to go transition to outside playtime. So um, the reason could be interpreted one way. It could be interpreted uh, they don't want to get in line or they, they don't, um, they're having a hard time, but we don't know why. And if you take a sensory motor approach, the first thing I noticed was that he was working on a writing, drawing folder exercise. So he had um, five or six crayons out on the table, a piece of paper, a folder, and a baggie, so a Ziploc baggie. And for this particular folder work, he needed to get the crayons in the bag, (laughs) in the folder, and the paper in the folder and put away to get in line. Do you notice any movement issues with that (laughs) sequence? Right. Now, this is a kid who's on the spectrum. He has low shoulder stability. He has ADHD as well, so sequencing is going to be a challenge. And there's speed and fluency issues, so he will overshoot. So the crayons end up all over the place. They don't make it into the bag because there's a stress response of, "Uh uh-oh, i got to get in line. And I want to be at a certain place in the line because I don't want to be at the end. So if I get at the end of the line, I'm going to have a meltdown. <laughs> and so what, what we were looking at is how can we support this child to get in line if we know that the movement of putting all of these things away, getting out of the chair, walking over, and getting in line is going to be such a, a fight or flight response for him. Right, and movements that the rest of us take for granted. Take for granted. So it doesn't even occur to us to it's think not automated. about the challenge yes. in that. Right, because it's not automated for him. For him, it is a very thoughtful process, but the automated part for him is freak out, <laughs> Right, <laughs> which is, I don't want to be last again, da 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 So when we, when we step back and looked at all the movement transition pieces for this child, 
it became clear that the teacher would need to give him a five-minute warning before the line to prepare his body to get everything put away. Now, he can't always be in the same place in line all the time. We know that. But at least he felt more competent and more successful in getting to the line at the same time as his friends. And that one accommodation, understanding how difficult the movement was, changed so much of that transition. Another thing that worked for him was um, transitioning outside, so moving through space and going downstairs and going into an open field for outside play, flooding, Mm. which we can get into about the flooding gating piece. So what did the teachers come up with? He's snack monitor, so he needs to carry something. He had to be given something sensory motor wise concretely to carry down and a task at the end of that transition to organize him and switch him into the new space because his movement floods. Mm-hmm. So if he's flooded, emotions, movement, everything go big, 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 big. Then if a social interaction comes because he's already in a fight or flight state, a friend comes over and may irritate him, well, now we've got a real problem. So It takes a lot of thought and work, but once you understand how these particular components affect the sensory motor system, you can then use these tools. And Montessori already has these tools. Right. It's just you have to be more explicit with them. Right, which Dr. Buddy and I talked about, because mm-hmm. uh, there is so much that's implicit yes. uh, in the environment and the curriculum and everything else, but having and to make space. Things. In mm-hmm. Montessori, they do have space and preference. You know, if you don't want to sit at the table to do your work, well, there are these work mats. And how beautiful, because work mats are intuitively visually organizing. Yes. So if you have flooding movement issues, like Spectrum Kids and ADHD and all these other things have... When you have a work mat to sit at, how organizing is that? I mean, that, that in and of itself is inherently beautiful because now it is understood. This is where my body needs to be. Mm-hmm. What about, I, I have to ask this because this is sure. a common thing that we will see mm-hmm. in the classroom, a child who is wandering. Oh, yes. Children are going to take breaks. We don't expect mm-hmm. them to be engaged in work and concentrating for three hours straight. Mm-hmm. I, I can't even do that as an adult. Yeah. Uh, what time is it now? So, right. So, <laughs> but, you know, there's there are breaks mm-hmm. and then there's just uh-huh. wandering. Right. And oftentimes wandering can be misunderstood um, in my experience. So for kiddos who are wandering, I would say look at their core. And the reason for this is that sitting, you will lose arousal into your trunk. So a lot of people use their legs to arouse their core and their shoulders and their bodies. Because when you sit, um, be it on the floor or in a chair, you are responsible for holding your body up. Your legs aren't doing it for you. So oftentimes you will see a hyperextension, meaning an overshoot in the legs. Therefore, they will walk around in order to compensate using that hyperextension to compensate for an undershoot in their core. It's so crazy because what you're talking about is completely below consciousness. No, it doesn't happen on purpose at all. It's not on purpose. Yeah, Yeah. no, it's not on purpose at all. It's a total just, it just happens. And so it can look like, oh, they're just taking a break. But maybe what, if if it becomes a problem or um, something that inhibits the child from doing work, um, I tend to speak to it. I notice you're walking around right now quite a bit. Do you do you feel like maybe you need some help with your body? Can I help you with that? Or I'll give squeezes 
So I'm a big squeeze person. I know occupational therapists talk about deep pressure, but I use it a lot to help wake up bodies. Another piece that people don't also realize is that if your feet are not touching the ground, you will wander if you have sensory motor differences. If your feet are not... Really? Yeah. How many people do crisscross applesauce in their chairs? Oh. (laughs) Because when your feet and you're not getting enough input into your body, we will do things like lean forward. Like I'm doing right now? Exactly. Um, We will lean forward. And that, to me, my brain goes, this is both core but also legs. That we're trying to get ourselves in our bodies. So if you have a kiddo whose feet are not on the ground, which is why I love Montessori using such height appropriate pieces, but sometimes not because I've seen some kids where their feet are dangling off the chair. And I wonder if you observe that, how long the kid stays in that chair. Hmm. It's not grounding. That's interesting. I don't like sitting at bar stools. Yeah. I don't like it either. Yeah. Because my feet are not touching. They're floating. Yeah. So if we think about emotional grounding, we got to think about sensory motor grounding. Are our bodies touching the floor? Are we stable in them? And if not, even if your feet are touching the floor, that doesn't mean you're not going to wander. But those are some pieces that you can look at to find out. So I'd say look at the equipment, look what the child chooses. If the child is always choosing to be under a table to do work or is always choosing to be on the floor, I would say that there's definitely some core sensory motor pieces that are going on. Not all the time. It doesn't have to be extreme, but maybe flooding issues too, which we can kind of get into the gating flooding Yeah, piece. let's talk about that. Yeah. So let's talk about what... What wh- is it? What is it? What is <laughs> flooding and gating? Yeah. Um, okay. So Dr. Budding can probably do a better job of explaining this than I, but I'll do my, my best. So when information enters our brains... And this doesn't mean just sensory information because the brain doesn't go, oh, this is light, this is sound, this is hearing. I mean, it does at some point, but initially it's information, right? And that can come in the form of emotion, movement, all of these pieces, right? Memories or information. So when our brains receive this information, there's a gating process that goes on, meaning we will regulate the amount or intensity of the information based on how well we gate. So inhibition essentially, right? So regulating the intensity of what's happening in our brains. If an individual lacks inhibition, which is what we see a lot on the spectrum and a lot on ADHD, it will be harder to gate and control the amount of information that comes in inherently. So if you have that kind of neurology, you're going to try to filter out as much as you can. So you'll have the kids that sit under the table to do their work. I would say that they're trying to gate. They're trying to use external things to gate what's not happening internally. Does that make sense? yeah. So when I go to Target, I listen to podcasts because Target is a a hot mess for me because I get overwhelmed. There's lights, there's sounds, there's all this stuff. So... I use an external thing to help regulate my process. Kids do this all the time. They'll hide under blankets. What's another example of doing that? Anyways, so that's all I can think of right now. Some examples are where a a child will probably act in in an overshoot way and then in an undershoot way. That's right. um, And that is related to gating and flooding. And that's related, right? Mm -hmm. So... If you have a robust enough sensory motor system to problem solve your way through getting your body under a table, right, 
that is pretty great. But not everybody has that. So if your sensory motor system is not integrating with the environment in the same way as others, you're not going to necessarily have the ability to inhibit or the ability to problem solve yourself in a fight or flight state of, oh, I need to be under the table right now to do my work. Right. And this is where understanding what overshoot, undershoot can look like is so helpful for teachers because it can look like the kid is hyper, the kid is running around the room, the kid is uh, finding a friend to over-escalate with them. Right. You know, we even had uh, here at our house when we got my daughter's first report card, mm. it told us how many times she had gone to the bathroom, uh-huh. which I, I thought was just really wrong. But in any case, I, I asked her, I said, so first of all, I don't really know why they're tracking this, but in any case, why are you going to the bathroom so right. much? And basically, right. she was going to the bathroom to regulate herself. Exactly. So it wasn't because she had to use mm-hmm. the bathroom. It was mm-hmm. because she needed to, mm-hmm. she was feeling anxious mm-hmm. and she was feeling stressed. Mm-hmm. And so she would go to the bathroom to regulate herself. Yeah. And the school, this is, you know, conventional school, so mm-hmm. it's not a Montessori school, but they saw it as, pro- they see it as problematic. They see it as avoidant. They see it as avoidance. <laughs> yeah. They see it as avoidance. Yeah. They say, and, oh, she doesn't want to do her work. Or, yeah. And well, they, yeah, no, she they, can't. <laughs> they will make all kinds of rules around being Absolutely. able to go to the bathroom. But so you can't, they, they limit how you can actually regulate yourself Absolutely. within the environment. And it takes away from self-regulated learning because now, no, 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 you need to follow the rules. Okay. No, bathrooms are a, a big deal, I guess. I don't know how to, <laughs> way to put it, but... They're a big deal for many reasons, but a lot of people use them as ways to regulate. So going to breaks, um, having them be at particular times during the day is a big one. I mean, how many clients do I have who come and almost on the dot every single time, you know, 10 minutes into the session or 20 minutes, I got to use the bathroom. Now, my job in that particular environment is to help them cope through that. So maybe they're using it as a way to replay a memory that doesn't necessarily need to be replayed. Um, So that's where you have to kind of assess what is happening and why it's happening. And is it healthy? I mean, if you have a person using the bathroom five times in an hour, that's not useful anymore. I mean, it's useful, but we have to understand why they're doing that. Right. I think it can be hard, though. I think a lot of Montessori classrooms will, they will provide things that the children can do as a way to help regulate themselves. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if they need to, for instance, during the three-hour work cycle in the morning in an elementary classroom, they may have a jump rope that's on the outside patio. You can go and do mm-hmm. you know, a certain amount of jumping mm-hmm. or whatever it is. But I think sometimes what you see is that there needs to be some sort of boundary around it sure. because it can turn into something that then people take for granted and then it turns into an avoidance. Correct. So it's kind of a, it's a fine line because you want to be able to provide right. those opportunities, right. which really do help the children to learn how to self-regulate. Totally. Well, and this is where it kind of goes back to that, that um, have to example I gave where maybe you have to step in if you see it becoming a distraction or a, no longer a tool. So that's kind of like how I would judge it. Is this really a tool anymore or is this 
not. And listen, we're all going to mess up in these interpretations. Right. That's the other thing, Grace, you have to give yourself. It's like we're going to try a million different ways, and sometimes it's just not going to work. Well, and and asking the children. Absolutely. Is this still a tool mm-hmm. for you, or what has this become for you to yeah. help them to, yeah, to build awareness. recognize that and build yeah. awareness? And then maybe to have them also come up with a strategy. Correct. You know, do it with them instead of always it coming from the adult. Mm-hmm. But again, it's that it's helping them with that self-regulation mm-hmm. piece. Absolutely. So yeah, bathrooms are a big one. And then tools, sensory tools. I mean, in the Montessori school, you have sensory motor built in. And even, you know, I've seen some sensory tables actually in Montessori. I mean, it may not be standard, but I've seen Montessori classrooms have sensory tables for a break, you know, so if the kids need to fidget or if they need to play with their hands or they need to play with putty or whatever, it's there for them if they need it. So there are different tools you can use, but again, it's about what is causing the need for it and that we have to recognize there's nothing wrong with that need, but that we need to honor if it's being helpful or not. Right, right. All right. Well, thank you so much for mm, my pleasure coming and talking I could talk to us for today. hours. And uh, well, we are going to be putting together a mm-hmm. webinar. Absolutely. So there's more to come on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, if any of our listeners actually have any kinds of questions, mm-hmm. I would love to hear from you. So you can always email me at laura at whitepaperpress.us. Mm-hmm. And also please be sure to join us on our Science Montessori and Parenting Facebook page because that's another place that you can actually ask questions. Thanks again, Peggy, for coming My and pleasure. sharing your knowledge with us. Bye. Bye.